Good evening, and welcome to today's podcast from Claysmore English Department. I'm James Carpenter, and I'm going to talk to you about Keats's poem, Ode to a Nightingale. The poem is far too complicated to deal in any detail in a ten-minute podcast, so I want to focus on just a couple of things. Firstly, I'd like to say a word or two generally about the poem, and then to focus on one or two stanzas in a bit more detail. Keats wrote the poem in April or May 1819, after a nightingale had nested in his garden in Hampstead, and so in one sense the poem is an ode to a nightingale. But on another, of course, on another level, of course, it's about poetic inspiration and the astonishing f- power, the intoxication of poetic inspiration that Keats feels, um, but also its f- elusiveness. It's uh, the difficulty that he has in grasping it. And ultimately, um, in the poem, the poetic inspiration leaves him, and it leaves him in a sense of um, doubt about what he's really experienced, or even, indeed, whether he's experienced it at all. So, um, f- firstly, the the poem as a whole. It, it There are eight stanzas. Um, in the first three, Keats is talking about what he doesn't want to do. He's craving poetic inspiration. Um, my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. Um, but he doesn't want to... He, he contemplates drinking alcohol. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth. Um, he talks about the beaker full of the warm south and the beaded bubbles winking at the brim. And he's contemplating uh, drinking and leaving the world unseen, and with the nightingale fading away into the forest dim. But in line 31, he makes clear that he doesn't want to follow the song of the nightingale in quite that way. He says that he doesn't want to fly charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but rather he wishes to fly on the viewless wings of poesy. And within a fraction of a second, he's made his journey a kind of tele-transportation through the realm of the intuition, already with thee. Tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. And this is where we see how the poem develops. It's moved from the everyday world of, of home and just ordinary dreaming to a world of poetic inspiration to do with the fays, the fairy lands of line 70. And as soon as he's made this move, the poem becomes paradoxical. He talks about how there's no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways, how he cannot see what flowers are at his feet, nor can he see what soft incense hangs upon the boughs. And in these four lines, we're reminded of Keats's characteristic mixing of the senses what today we talk about as synesthesia. Um, He talks about how the light is by the breezes blown, or how he cannot see soft incense, and the mixing of senses is very evident. Instead, he's relying on other senses. He has to guess each sweet, wherewith the seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild. And we, we have a feeling that he's now living, if you wish, in a parallel world in line 45, because that line echoes very closely the line 
the weariness, the fever, and the fret, line 23. So although there's not an explicit antithesis, there's a, a, a rhythmical one between the ordinary world, the world of weariness, fever, and fret, and the poetic world, where he's now among the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild. Interestingly, in this poem, um, there are far fewer uses of assonance and internal rhyme. Remember in the Ode to Melancholy, we found that the poem was riddled with those echoing sounds, and indeed in Ode to a Grecian Urn. But in this poem, Keats is using different techniques to try to convey the atmosphere of the imagination. For example, you might like to look at the simplicity of the language in stanza 6 and stanza 7, and compare that with the complexity and the richness of the language that we found in Melancholy and Grecian Urn. By saying less, Keats, in fact, conjures up um, more ideas in our own imagination than he had perhaps managed to by describing what was in his own in the earlier two odes. In order to achieve this um, state, uh, this uh, realm of the imagination, Keats has set up a whole load of um, opposites, you know, life and death, waking and sleeping, um, beauty and the fading of beauty, youth and age. And it's almost as though, in order to help us imagine this uh, realm of the imagination, Keats can only do that by uh, defining opposites. Uh, he, he explains what, what this realm isn't, and um, out of what it isn't we emerges a sense of what it is. So in line 9 he talks about the shadows numberless, and that's very much the kind of world that he's trying to describe, a, a world of shadows and something that can't be numbered, or indeed something that can't be described. And we're going to see at the end of the poem, the very opening of stanza 8, that it's a word that destroys this realm of the imagination. It's a word that brings him back to his soul self and makes the imaginary world fly from him. And other op opposites that, that we see, for example, in line 61, um, he puts the word death and immortal alongside each other as a in an oxymoronic kind of way but the whole line line the whole of line 61 is paradoxical thou wast not born for death immortal bird and so in a sense what i suppose what i'd like to suggest is that um it's through paradox and certainly Ill illogicality and it's through the realm of the intuition that keats is going to attain um imaginative insight which is what he's trying to write about. Uh, we have a sense of this if we just look at the patterns of imagery, perhaps. There are a whole series of words to do with religion. Um, we hear about the high requiem, we hear about Ruth, and we hear about the plaintive anthem. Um, there are a whole series of words to do with the classical world. We hear about the dryad and Bacchus of ancient days where the song was heard by emperor and clown. And we also, the, the third theme is to do with the realm of the imagination, the realm of fancy. We hear about the Queen Moon and all her starry phase, which reminds us of um, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and Mercutio's speech about the moon. We also have um, fairy lands forlorn. And we need to just dwell a little bit upon fairy lands forlorn. The song of the nightingale, Keats reflects was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown, and also possibly was the same song that was heard by Ruth. And it's the same song, he says, in line 68, 
that hath charmed magic casements. And one has to imagine the window, the magic casement, opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Um, the song has opened the window onto the realm of the imagination, which interestingly for Keats is perilous. It's a dangerous place. It's a slightly irrational, difficult, dangerous place for him to contemplate. And at the end of line 70, he, he describes the fairy lands as forlorn, lost, lost to the contemporary world, lost to him perhaps. And indeed, that's precisely what happens. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. So without any overt reference to death, the, the bell tolling just indicates to us that this is a kind of dying that the loss of the realm of the imagination is a kind of dying. And it's a dying that um, is obviously metaphorical. It's expressed that he comes back to his soul self. He, become, he regains self-consciousness through the use of language. And he goes on to explain that the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. He thought he was in this magical, imaginative realm, but in fact... The use of language destroys it, and he cannot remain in the magical world. The other set of images that uh, we find in this poem that echoes other poems and letters by Keats is this idea of fading, that he becomes a part of the imaginative world by fading. From line 20, he wants to fade with thee, uh, sorry, and with thee fade away into the forest dim, fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget and so on. So th th this emphasis is on, on fading. He talks in um, line 47 about the fast fading violets. He talks, or we have a sense that beauty fades in line 29. That this idea of fading and dissolving is very important to him. It's something he picked up in his own annotations to Shakespeare's play Antony and Cleopatra, where we find a similar idea, that identity dissolves or fades. And for Keats, in one of his letters, he talks about the annihilation of the self. This is what he's interested in. The annihilation of the ego, the dissolving of the self, enables poetic inspiration to take place. All the time you're in control of yourself, where the ego is dominant, for Keats, it's impossible to attain the poetic or imaginative insights that he's striving for. And in this, he contrasts himself with Wordsworth, who he saw as being overwhelmed by his own ego. He talks indeed about being, uh, with Wordsworth, we're bullied by the whims of an egotist. And later on he talks about the egotistical sublime of a poet like Wordsworth and contrasts it with what he's trying to do, which is to get away from that. And most famously, he expresses this idea in his phrase about negative capability. How the loss of self, the loss of the ego, is important to the poet in gaining poetic insight and paradoxically obviously for a poet it's language that prevents this from happening so line 70 71 that's the critical point there that language prevents the poetic insight taking place and for a poet of course that's the essential paradox of everything that he's doing perhaps what's most extraordinary about this poem though is that the process that Keats is describing is indeed exactly the process that we go through as we listen to the poem and as we reach its end. So we begin with Keats 
um, our heart aching in a drowsy numbness. Um, he takes us through a number of ideas of the beaded bubbles winking at the brim of the of the glass of wine, um, and we travel with him and the song of the nightingale into this magical world of stanza five and six and seven. And there is a progression through the stanzas. So in stanza five, it's about what he cannot see. And what he cannot see um, fades into what he cannot hear. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. So it moves from what can't be seen, in a sense, to what can't be heard, what one's striving to hear. And uh, because he can hear the poetic inspiration, and because he can hear the, the sound of the nightingale, now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. And notice, even in those lines, there's this characteristic Keatsian uh, movement of idea. He has a thought, now more than ever seems it rich to die, and then it's modified, not to die, but simply to cease upon the midnight with no pain. And uh, by the time we get to stanza seven, he's very much concentrating on the voice that he can hear and the awareness that that voice has transcended generations. This ode is unlike any of the other odes he's written to date in that he has fiddled about with the eighth line of the stanzas. So we still have ten line stanzas, just like we had an ode on melancholy and the Grecian urn. But here we have a short eighth line in each stanza. And so the, the question that immediately arises, well, is why has he done this? And what happens to us, the reader, in the silence of the second half of that line? And of course, what Keats has done here brilliantly is to um, create in the reader the very process that he's trying to write about as happening to himself. That it's in the silence that our imagination moves, and it's in the silence of the, of the short eighth line that the intuition takes over before it's modified and we return to, to a more substantial idea. So if we look at stanza 7, for example, um, Through the sad heart of Ruth, when sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oft times hath, and in the silence we sense the searching for an idea which is charmed magic casements, and then he's in the magical place. You can look at every stanza and identify the transition in idea that takes place in the silence of the short eighth line. And it's a, it's a, it's a stroke of genius that, that Keats discovers in this modification of the standard structure of the line or the standard form of the ode that he's been used to using so far. Let's just have a quick look at the end where we hear about how the imagination cannot cheat so well as she's famed to do and the bewilderment of line 79 and line 80. We had the certainty at the end of, or the sort of certainty at the end of the Grecian urn or the ode of melancholy, but here we're in a state of doubt and uncertainty. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? And throughout stanza eight, you'll see that the meter is modified. The, the sort of iambics that we're generally used to aren't so prevalent in stanza 8. There's disturbance and uncertainty, and that's reflected in the meter. So many of the lines have an iambic trachaic uh, inversion at the opening to them. So past the near meadows, up the hillside, in the next valley glades, they all begin with a strong beat 
rather than a weak one. And line 80 itself, fled is that music. And the doubt is articulated at the end of the poem, do I wake or sleep? Has he woken from something that was unreal? Or actually has he now fallen asleep because what he had experienced in the Song of the Nightingale was so real that anything apart from that is something that is um, inadequate and less real than the realm of the imagination. <laughs> 